Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. In today's episode, we meet Philip Gerard, author of Cape Fear Rising, which was re-released this year on the 25th anniversary of its publication, because it remains a story that needs to be told, especially in a time when there are places in this world where white supremacists are still on the march. Did you know that in 1898, black citizens held most of the city's government offices in Wilmington, North Carolina? Did you also know that a well-connected group of white citizens staged a bloody coup? fixing the 1898 election by threat and then killing and running many black citizens out of town. When the book was first published, Philip Girard recalls that he was a relatively naive, untenured assistant professor at UNC Wilmington who was unprepared for the backlash in the community when descendants of white leaders who had stolen the 1898 election and the property of their fellow black citizens fired back with threats of their own to the author. Girard didn't learn until many years later that the Board of Trustees intended to deny him tenure because of the book and would have done so but for one trustee, the late Owen Keenan, a descendant of Rand Keenan, one of the 1898 ringleaders, who spoke up for the author saying that to punish Gerard for writing the book would go against the core value of academic freedom. We start with Philip reading a scene near the opening of the book when the Red Shirts, a group of white Wilmington hoodlums, exert their power over a black preacher, and the white journalist does nothing but tell his upset wife that it is none of their business. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. At a remote station, three rowdies wearing red shirts boarded at the back of the car. They jostled each other roughly and hooted at some vulgar joke. They took their seats and quieted down, and the train racketed through half an hour more of woods and swamp before stopping again. This time, a single passenger boarded at the front. He was slender and fair and wore a pencil-thin mustache. He was dressed in a pearl-gray suit with a white shirt buttoned to the throat without a tie. His gray fedora was banded in black silk. In one hand, he clutched a cloth bag. In the other, a small Bible. As he passed their seats, the train started up, and he staggered a moment before recovering his balance. Gray Ellen looked up into his face and smiled. He nodded slightly and smiled back. Then he found an empty seat two rows behind them. Preacher, Sam said, by the look of him. 
Handsome devil, Gray Ellen observed quietly, so the man across the aisle would not overhear. Makes a person want to spend more time in church. Waddell turned once to look at the preacher. Something about the man struck a queer note. When the conductor came through, he stopped beside the preacher and collected his ticket. He loitered a moment longer than necessary. At the rear of the car, the red-shirt rowdies were arguing. Well, by God, one of them was saying loudly rising, I'll find out what color that boy is. Sam could tell by his tone that the man had been drinking. He surely knew the signs by now. The man lurched up the aisle, swaying with the movement of the train, and stopped when he got to the preacher's seat. Out the window, Sam could see the river again. But he turned to watch what was playing out two rows behind. You preacher, the red shirt said. I know you. The preacher didn't even look up from his Bible. I doubt it. Don't be backsassing me, boy. I seen you in Tennessee. Last year it was. Trouble in Johnson County. And you smack dab in the middle of it. Sir, you are mistaken. Now he looked up straight into the man's eyes, challenging him. The other two red shirts moved up the aisle and stood behind the first man. You trying to pass? Trying to make fools out of us? I sure I don't know what you mean, the preacher said. Sam was transfixed by the man's calm demeanor. He himself had already have shoved a fist into the red shirt's eye. A sober man could always knock down a drunk. Gray Ellen squeezed Sam's arm and whispered, Do something. None of our business, local stuff. Help him before it gets out of hand. Let it go by. But instead, Gray Ellen turned and rose half out of her seat. The red shirts grabbed the preacher by the coat and hauled him into the aisle. You ought to be riding in the colored car, boy. Didn't your mama never learn you your place? The preacher's hat fluttered to the floor and was lost under boots. Sam, Gray Ellen whispered urgently. The red shirts were manhandling the preacher up the aisle. Gray Ellen suddenly moved to block them. What's going on here? she demanded. This gentleman, he was just minding his own business. That's right, ma'am, and you just mind yours. Philip Gerard is the author of five novels, eight works of nonfiction, and numerous essays on history, music, and writing craft, including Cape Fear Rising, Blair Publications, and his most recent book, The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, UNC Press. He teaches uh, in the BFA and MFA programs of the Department of Creative Writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where he's won a number of awards for teaching excellence. He served on the faculty of Goucher College's Summer Residency MFA program in creative nonfiction. He and his wife, Jill, live in Wilmington, North Carolina on Whiskey Creek near the Intercoastal Waterway. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, Philip, welcome to Charlotte. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, so you came all the way up from Whiskey Creek. <laughs> <laughs> On the new fast highway, yeah. Did, did, are there some bootleggers that hide in that creek? Yeah. There used to be. There's a famous story back in the, I think it was the 1880s, in Harper's Magazine, an illustration of the revenuers having a shootout with bootleggers right at the mouth of the creek. They used to run whiskey up there. Yeah, well, any pic- particular reason you picked that spot? Well, it's on the water. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're a water guy. So you've got a fictional newspaper reporter, Sam Jenks, who you sort of refer to in this opening. He's just kind of a he's a small part of this opening read you just did. He came to Wilmington from Chicago, correct? Right, yeah. right. And he shows up in 1898, and you arrive from Chicago close to 90 years later in 1989. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so 
you gave us a little bit of a uh, sense of what it was like to arrive in 1898. What did you experience among the races in Wilmington in 1989 when you arrived? Well, when I arrived in Wilmington, I was astonished at the level of segregation. I mean, no matter where you went, it was either all black or all white, whether it was a church or a movie or a, or a show or a club or, or whatever. And I, I started asking around about why this was so. I mean, I'd come from Chicago, right, which is this, this teeming right. hive of every nationality, every ethnicity you can imagine. And people had all kinds of stories about the riots or the time the National Guard burned down the black neighborhood or the time blacks marched on City Hall. And I couldn't find any evidence for any of it. So I spent, I think it was my second uh, winter break, just seeing what I could find out. And I found a number of self-published books. I found a few things in the local history room. And I, the outlines of the story as it emerged were not just that it was a racial incident, which it was, it was a massacre, and not just that the Flashpoint was a writer, Alex Manley, who was an editor of a black newspaper, but that fundamentally it was about the subversion of democracy itself by a small group of people who didn't like the way an election had gone and decided they were going to take back the power in the city and were never, ever brought to account for it. Hmm. So what was your life like before you arrived in Wilmington? Well, my life was somewhat uh, itinerant. I mean, I had spent time, I got my graduate degree in Arizona in Tucson, then taught for five years up at Arizona State in Phoenix, and then I'd gone to uh, teach at Lake Forest College in Illinois for a while. And I'd always wanted to come back to the coast because I'd spent many, many happy uh, summers as a, as a teenager, uh, coming down with first with a neighbor and then on my own to camp on the Outer Banks. And I had determined that if ever I could get back here to, to eastern North Carolina, I would. So when the job opened up, I was the first guy in line for it. Now, you didn't fight in the Spanish-American War, like Jenks, and, and, but he was kind of moving around, too, and trying to find his place as he, as he came to uh, Wilmington. Now, he's a fictional character, of course, you right. know, but you use him to kind of tell the story, and he comes in that time period. You also are coming to a new place to start your life, although it didn't quite work out for Sam Jenks in the story. Well, Sam Jenks, is, he's, he, this is his last shot. He's a failed war correspondent. His claim to fame is that he missed the famous charge up San Juan Hill, sleeping off a bed drunk. And his wife has laid down the law like, you get one more chance. And she's a school teacher. And they, he's been summoned to Wilmington by a distant relative. And he doesn't understand that what they want is someone who will write their version of the truth of things. And what I, what I wanted as a novelist was a character who could come to town and kind of represent, well, me, or but the reader in a larger way, and become our representative inside the story to find out things. And I, and I think that when you've been living in a place for a long time, everything seems normal to you. Even the most abnormal thing seems normal to you, like, like that se sense of segregation. So I wanted a person coming to town who, for the first time, would see all this and be astonished by much of it and be also lost and confused. I mean, he finds the politics of Wilmington, even compared to Chicago, fairly impenetrable. And he, he has a mentor on the newspaper um, who helps to, uh, Harry Calabash, who helps to kind of walk him through all that. But so I wanted that kind of a character who did not come in possessing any moral high ground, who came with no prior knowledge, he, as they say, had no dog in that fight, and let him discover for himself by witnessing it with his own eyes and ears what was about, and then being the moral focus that the reader would have to identify with in making their own decisions. Like, what would I do? At what point do you say, this is wrong and we must stop it? Especially in a place where you want to go on living, where you want to have opportunities, and where you know that being invited inside the club means you have to go along. 
you know, to get along. So were there any similarities between Sam Jenks' sort of search for the truth and your own as a writer trying to, trying to get at this story? Well, there were a few. I mean, there are a lot of people who are not exactly pleased to have the story told. Right. And so my initial, uh, you know, excursions into the local history room were, were met with a, with less than enthusiasm, really? shall really? we say. Uh, and I had mixed mixed uh, reception at the local museum, which had been, by the way, the Cape Fear Museum originally in Wilmington was the repository of all the memorabilia of the Wilmington Light Infantry. Uh, so at first I got cooperation, and then later on I got a lot less cooperation. Uh, when I got to the Wilson Library at Chapel Hill, it was like they'd been waiting for me. They had collected all the stuff connected to 1898 and had it sort of sitting there just waiting for some researcher to come and ask for it, and they were wonderful. And so I spent an entire week, basically from the time they opened to the time they closed. Um, I deliberately did not talk to people or interview people. In fact, I told very few people what I was even doing. So I didn't want to get caught up in kind of gauzy family legends or mythology that was sort of just urban legend and not really true. I wanted to stay with primary documents and everything from the maps of the day to accounts written by people on the scene at the time it was happening to the old newspapers that I could find and that sort of thing. And uh, But you, need, you needed a character who could help you tell the story, right? It's yeah. So, so Sam Jenks comes to life in this history full of facts. Sure. Right? As I always tell my students, it helps in fiction to have line-crossing characters, characters that can go into all sorts of different corners of the story. And and as a newspaper reporter, he can do that. Mm-hmm. And his wife is a white school teacher, thought to be a fairly innocuous occupation for women in those days, something that they were allowed to do. And she can move back and forth in any community as well, any community of class or color. So they, they become very valuable characters in being able to become witnesses to everything that's going on in this, this very turbulent time. So we're going to be going through and doing some readings uh, from different parts of the book. But before we sort of dive into little segments here, just sort of a high-level 30-second view of what's going on. We've got a predominantly uh, black uh, set of aldermen. Is that what they were called at the time? They were called, well, there was was a board of audit and finance, board of aldermen. There was uh, a mayor. There were various other politicians. But it it was pretty much uh, by by vote because the the blacks outnumbered the whites. In in, uh, 1896, the Republicans, which were the party of Lincoln, and the fusionists, or or, so the populists, who were the party of the aggrieved small farmers, got together and white and black formed what they called the fusionist movement. And they were enough to defeat the Democrats, which were the party of white supremacy. And so they were able to take the city offices and the county offices and appoint their constables and their collector of customs and all the rest of it. And in 1898, when the other elections were coming up, um, the white supremacist Democrats determined they were going to take back all those elections any means that they, they by any means they could. And all the ones that weren't up for vote until two more years, which were all the city offices, they were just going to take them back by force of arms. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you have threats to the vote, and, and so they... They control the ballot box, but then they, they take it a step further. We're going to talk more about that. But it, yeah. but uh, I'm curious about one thing, um, because it got mentioned, I think, in your afterward uh, monuments to history. There are a lot of monuments that have come under fire recently, uh, Confederate monuments, and there are a number of those in the Wilmington area. Are there any monuments to this? coup of 1898? There is finally an 1898 memorial that was put up uh, as a result of efforts by the local community in the in 1998 during the centennial 
commemoration of the events. And there is now a street marker to Alex Manley. And I understand there's another marker going up that will actually commemorate the, the coup itself and the massacre. Um, but, but you're right, predominantly Wilmington is there's this built environment that really extols the Confederacy. And, uh, and there's a sense that those monuments have been up forever, but they started coming up during the same time period that uh, Jim Crow was coming about and they were trying to take back from the period of time they didn't much appreciate, which was Reconstruction, right? Sure. Ironically, yeah. most of them weren't there in, in 1898. They oh, were, even they were, uh, yeah. they were mostly a product of the United Daughters of the Confederacy between the 1890s and 1925 or 1930. And and so they, they were erected with a very definite political agenda, which you can't ignore right. when you're trying to figure out what, what in the world we should do with them now. So you uh, mentioned a phrase earlier here, the riots. Uh, you talk about it oft also in your afterward, uh, and that's something that circulated in among uh, white, I guess, not true historians, but they were telling the history that they wanted to remember, and they called it the riots, sort of a black mob burning the town. Is that propaganda still circulating? I think it's been largely corrected. I mean, you have to realize in 1994 when this book came out, people would respond to me on the radio or at a reading and say, that never happened, you made it all up. And they said, I lived here all my life, I never heard of this, I never heard about it in school. Well, now people are hearing about it. But I think it's important that the terminology be changed, and I never accepted the word riots, which seems like a spontaneous uprising of you know people who were suddenly decided to do something violent. This was actually a coup. It was staged. It had very... Uh, um, complicated planning and involved military officers, serving officers, ex-Confederate officers, and involved paramilitary organizations like Wilmington Light Infantry, Wilmington Naval Reserve, the State Guard. Uh, you can even argue, I suppose, because the State Guard was the one that imposed martial law on Wilmington, that really the state of North Carolina was the ultimate uh, propagator of the coup against the citizens of the black citizens of Wilmington. Now, have there been other books written about uh, this period in time, uh, that is before you Wrote this book? Charles Chestnut, who is an African-American novelist, did a book which I believe came out in 1901 for the, the first time. And he uses this material. Um, I think he's a little kinder, actually, to the white supremacist than I probably was. Uh, Might I, be the time they wrote it, too. I, I think, oddly enough, when you get farther away from historical period, you often learn more. There are a lot more archives that turn up, and, and they're still finding stuff. Now, historians and scholars have gone into this a lot since I wrote this book and have come out with a lot more detail about this. And, of course, the 1898 commission, which came uh, after this. Uh, and Jack Thorne, who was a, a pseudonym of another African-American writer, wrote a book called Hanover, or The Persecution of the Lowly. And there was another a nonfiction book done by a professor, I think, in Tennessee, and which I actually hadn't seen before I was doing did this book, but uh, he, he did a sort of nonfiction version of the, the basic outline of events. So, and I like historical fiction because you kind of you know bring the characters into play and you're telling a story through their lives. But uh, why re-release it 25 years later? Is this story still relevant? Well, we had thought, I had certainly thought that by the time you know, 25 years rolled around, that this would be really old news. And then, you know, we have the Klan rallying in North Carolina to celebrate a president who is arguably a white supremacist president. We've got um, people marching by torchlight in Charlottesville, where we, my wife and I spend a lot of time because we have friends up there. And, and why are they marching? Well, they're, they're there because of the Robert E. Lee statue. So again, the Confederacy is back up, rearing its head. And so it just seemed like, 
with all that's happening in this country right now, this story is not not only not dead, but all these people are, are doing the same things again. Um, the suppression of voting rights that happened in 1898, the intimidation, making it difficult for people of color to vote. Uh, kind of all of the tricks are coming out of the same bag. And we just thought, well, we need to not only get it out there and re remind people, but try to get a new audience for it. And also give me a chance, both in the afterward, um, in the afterward especially, to talk about what happened when the book came out, the good and the bad results, and to show kind of what the history of a piece of literature can be when it gets out there in the political realm and how people treat it and, and how it can make a difference. So, truth. The Sunday Review and the local Star News, I believe you said this in your afterward as well, was not very flattering, suggesting that you were speaking the truth as you saw it without sticking to the facts. And yet, how has the historical scholarship of your work sort of played out? Well, uh, two things. One, I, that was an, kind of an infuriating thing to read because essentially they were questioning the entire genre of historical novel. And I said, you know, my, my reaction was, well, talk to Tolstoy, talk to Dickens, talk to John Steinbeck, talk to anybody who's written historically. And what you do is you take you know, a seminal event, an important event, and you bring it to life, both by bringing the real characters to life, but but sometimes because you need to, to, to cross different lines, you have to have you know, fictional characters experiencing it. Uh, the other thing is, in the 25 years, no historian has ever said, I got anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, they have fine-tuned things. Um, and in fact, uh, in, in my version of the story, William Rand Keenan, who is in charge of the Gatling gun detail, doesn't actually wind up firing it at a crowd of, of blacks and now there's new information that has come out that perhaps he did hmm. and perhaps there were a number of blacks that were killed by it at a place called the Manhattan Dance Hall in Wilmington. Well I know you got some uh, unflattering mail and phone calls and voicemails and maybe even some threats but you also um, got pushback from your employer the board of trustees you were up for tenure and you didn't realize I mentioned this in the opening you didn't realize at the time that you uh, were precariously close to having the board of trustees deny you tenure, even though you passed all the other requirements and their vote is sort of perfunctory at that level. Right. If, if you don't know how a university works, you don't come up for tenure. Um, tenure, first of all, is up and out. So if you don't get it, you're fired, right. essentially. And uh, But you're vetted by your peers in the department. Then the chair of your department has to sign off on that. And then you're vetted by the dean of your school. And then there's a committee that that dean has that also wants to sign off on it. And then you've got another university-level committee that reviews the entire thing, not only what, you, what you've done, but the procedure by which anybody vetted you. And then you've got the provost, who is in charge of that uh, committee. And then it goes to the chancellor's office, and they vet it. And you finally. got by all that. And, and the chancellor to the, signs to the, it, and then it goes to yeah. the board of trustees. So it would be unheard of, in other words, for the board of trustees to intervene in a particular tenure decision. Uh, because it essentially says the entire system didn't work. And yet you, you drew the attention of some of these prominent names who appeared as part of the Board of Trustees because of the book you'd written. Yes. And yes. they spoke out against you, and they were ready to not deny you tenure until? Until, according to, to Jim Lutzi, our former chancellor, Owen Keenan, stepped up and said, uh, you, you can't do this. You know, we stand for academic freedom and, you know, essentially that – what we are as a university, you can't defend that if you do this. And, and this is a descendant of the man who had his hands on the Gatling gun. Yeah, he is, he's in that family, sure. Yeah. And uh, and I, I hasten to say the pushback didn't come from everybody equally. There were certain who did, and, and there, there were some who didn't. So, But you did receive some positive reviews, too, correct? I mean, you got some, eventually, I, the, some positive the, feedback. Uh, 
the great thing that happened to me was that it was an answer to that uh, condition that I'd seen in Wilmington. So I remember the very first big public reading I did was in the old Wilmington market before they'd finished it. So it's just basically an unfinished brick shell of a building on the waterfront. And we had candlelights. And people filled in not only the room, but the whole gallery beyond it, and they were black and white. And it was the first time I'd been in such a integrated gathering in the entire time I'd been in Wilmington. And a lot of the other readings began to be like that, and they ended in question and answers that were a lot less about me and a lot more about them talking to one another about things that had been on their mind in the mm-hmm. audience. And that, I think, was the most positive thing to come out of it. Well, is, is it accurate to say that uh, the surnames of many of the white conspirators that were involved in this coup, those surnames survive and they bear prominence in the community and throughout the state? So, yeah, it's true. And I'll be the first one to say, I mean, I don't want anybody held to account for what their sure. granddaddy or exactly. great-granddaddy. I mean, if I were held to account for everything my grandfather did, God knows what I'd be doing. But these characters, I mean, I call them characters because they're in this book, but they're, sure. they're, they're, they're real people. But they're also complex people, like any villain, Right. There's a certain side to them that you might attach yourself to and say, oh, were, were some of these people the same way? Oh, absolutely. And that's the, the thing is that, you know, it's easy to dismiss a villain if you just say, oh, you know, Hitler. Nope, you know, that's an aberration. He's not really human. But what do you do when you got somebody who's the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church, like, like Peyton Hogue, and he's out there shooting down black people in the middle of the night? What do you do with Walker Taylor, who was... You know, he's, he's fondly revered and remembered for his work with the Boys Brigade, helping underprivileged boys all of his life. What about McCray? And McCray was, was thought of as the sharpest businessman in town, you know. Um, they, were, they were beloved by their families. They were beloved by their community in many ways. And, uh, and people like Colonel Alfred Moore Waddell, who actually led the mob that burned the record and chased Manley's, you know, staff away and, uh, and then became mayor of Wilmington, he was a charming guy. I mean, I, I actually liked him. I read his speeches. I read his own accounts. And, um, but you realize what a vile person he was, despite the fact of all that charm. I think we mentioned one of the ancestors of McCray in, in the book uh, was involved in founding Grandfather Mountain, right? The, right. Grandfather Mountain was initially Donald McCray and then his son, um, Hugh McCray. And Hugh McCray of Wilmington and Donald McCray of Wilmington. And so they, they had a, a big footprint in the western part of the state as well. All right, so let's get uh, let's get into the book here a little bit. Uh, the Spark, uh, Alex Manley. Tell us about Alex Manley, uh, who he was, and what he represents in the story. Alex Manley was a a, a mild mannered newspaperman, um, an intellectual, somebody who really was working for the betterment of his community. It was not by any previous history a firebrand or a troublemaker or anything like that. He seemed to be one of those kind of quietly civic minded guys who is really just trying to make things better. Um, an odd editorial appeared in his newspaper, and it was in response to Rebecca Felton, who had uh, was a, a, uh, a congressman's wife from Georgia, and she had said that the, the greatest danger to white farm wives in the South was being raped by black brutes, and if it took, you know, lynching a thousand of them, then so be it. And this was the black newspaper. The, and and he, he responded to this, or the paper did, yeah. and there's some curious things about it. One is But has he responded with his black newspaper he with, did. with an editorial in response to that? And his editorial read, you know, sometimes black women or white men are attracted to black men, and sometimes um, white men should take better care of their women, and on and on like this. So you can imagine that didn't play well. But the curious thing was that Rebecca Felton's remarks had been made like well over a year earlier. So why it should be responded to now is anybody's guess. 
And the other was that it was so totally out of character for anything Manley had written up to that point. And there were even, uh, there's at least one historian convinced that he was out of town at the time and didn't write the thing, that it was done by some other staffer. But in any event, the white newspaper and the white supremacist kind of seized on that, and it became the pretext for all that was wrong with what they called, you know, black domination, that this was the insult to their womanhood, this was the insult to their way of life, and that they needed to, in their terms, take back their city. And this gave them their their kind of... Uh, moral justification for doing this as, as sketchy and as deliberate as it was. All right, Philip, you could pick up here with this scene with uh, Alex Manley speaking with his brother after this editorial has appeared in the white paper and after he responds in the black newspaper. Alex stiffened. You haven't put out a new edition. No, brother, waiting on you. Good, that's good. They didn't need another inflammatory editorial. Brother Norwood must be tickled, Alex said. Frank hooted. Been kissing so much white ass, he's getting calluses on his lips. They rode on, enjoying the breeze of movement. Alex. He said it softly so Alex knew it must be important. I'm listening. It's bad. You don't know how bad it is. After the eviction from their quarters downtown, Frank had been so worried that he tried to buy a pistol, but nobody was selling guns to blacks. A new, unwritten ordinance. It was always the unwritten laws that got you. Alex waited for more, but Frank said nothing. You're suggesting we cease publication for a while. Only for a little while. Tempers are hot. Some mighty rough characters drifted into town. On the scout for that handsome face of yours. Something's in the wind, I know. I could smell it too all the way up in Asbury Park. It surely had a stink. Let it cool a while, Alex. Hear what I'm saying? Give the man time to forget about us and get distracted by something else. Alex thought, we are the only Negro daily newspaper in the country. But he's right. He wished Frank were wrong. It could have been worse, should have been worse. Next time, it would be. It stung his pride. It felt all wrong against fairness, against everything he stood for as a journalist and reformer. But he said, all right, Frank. We won't go to press for a while longer, but... Let's keep the staff together. Sometimes you just had to hold on to your anger, let it burn in your belly. Sometimes you said the most by saying nothing. Frank relaxed. It was all right now. Alex was home. Everything was going to work out fine. The buggy was among the outlying houses now, scattered kerosene lanterns flaring yellow lights across the dirt road. The electric lines didn't come out this far. Off to the left in the darkness lay Oakdale Cemetery, where the dead of seven generations of the best white families in the county rested in peace. Rose Greenhow, the Confederate spy who, weighted down by gold, drowned while swimming ashore from a foundering sidewheeler. Captain John Maffet, the blockade runner. George Davis, attorney general for the Confederacy. Generals, tycoons, planters, and their women. Alex had made a pilgrimage out there one rainy Monday just to read all the names. Out of sight across the river, they could hear the rumble of a night freight laboring along the seaboard airline. All right, listeners, when we come back, we're going to have some more readings from the book Cape Fear Rising. Um, we're also going to talk about uh, uh, the writing life of Philip Gerard. And if we have time, we're going to mention uh, a little bit about his most recent book, uh, How the Civil War Comes to North Carolina. So stay with us. Hey, listeners, we're at the uh, Robinson Spangler Carolina Room at the Uptown Branch, Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. I'm here with the historian-resident, Tom 
Hanchett, and we're talking uh, books. Uh, these books about uh, people of color that have influenced the Charlotte community. Tom, tell us about this first book. Thriving in the Shadows, it is by Fanny Flono, who wrote for The Observer for many years, and it's about the black experience in Charlotte and Mecklenburg County, told through a lot of gorgeous photographs. Uh, this library has been at the forefront of collecting, in particular, African-American photographs, digitizing and putting them online at cmstory.org. Fanny Flono crafted a book that gets you inside Charlotte's tremendously um, productive black middle class, um, uh, Johnson C. Smith University, uh, black doctors, black lawyers, um, and um, uh, even um, J.T. Williams, who was a U.S. top diplomat to West Africa back at the turn of the last century. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thriving in the Shadows, I'm amazing story. I'm just flipping through it, and uh, yeah, some wonderful photographs here. And speaking of photographs, I see a smiling face on the next book of uh, Julius Chambers, a giant of the uh, Mecklenburg County legal community. Uh, tell us about that book. This is uh, Life in the Legal Struggle for Civil Rights. The author Richard Rosen and Joe Manier. Uh, Julius Chambers came here um, at uh, the, the behest of the NAACP, which was helping seed law firms throughout the South to help people in the, the crucial moments of the civil rights movement. Um, his uh, cases included um, the, the key one for opening textile employment to African Americans. Imagine uh, the main employer in this region would not hire black people. And he was also instrumental in Swan versus Board of Education. Which is the national Supreme Court test case for busing nationwide. Exactly. So this third book here, Color and Character. Color and Character. This is a, a new book by Dr. Pamela Grundy about West Charlotte High School. You're not from West Charlotte. Why do you care? Well, she's using West Charlotte as a case study for all of the national and local debates over education in the last couple of generations. It goes right up to the minute. And, well, you don't have a kid in school? Yes, you're interested because you pay taxes. Yeah, we're interested, we're interested in these books. We're interested in all the books here. Uh, listeners, if you're interested, uh, you can find out more at cmlibrary.org. Or stop by any of the uh, 20 branches, and as Tom says, you can check out one of these books. Tom, thanks. Thank you. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. So we're back with Philip Gerard, uh, author of uh, Cape Fear Rising. Philip, there was a part of this story. Um, so the, the, the whites have gotten together, uh, the, the white businessmen who are running the town with some of the people who are also involved in different positions in the town. They've got this plan together, and they're going to actually try to coerce the vote, uh, prevent blacks from coming to the ballot box. And then they've also got their their – loading up with ammunition, they're storing it, they've got a Gatling gun that's coming to town. Um, but a few days before before the vote happens, there's a meeting, and in that meeting, a document comes out, right? Right. And um, I'd like you to read from that section of the book, and then we'll just talk a minute about that. Hugh McCray drew out a document and tossed it off-handedly onto the table. L.B. Sasser said, thought we were keeping that under wraps. Mike Dowling picked it up and read the first paragraph with great difficulty. He scrutinized it for a few minutes, then gave up. What is it? Sasser grabbed the document with a sigh of disgust and read, Believing that the Constitution of the United States contemplated a government to be carried on by an enlightened people. There's going to be a mass meeting tomorrow, 
Hugh McRae explained, believing that its framers did not anticipate the enfranchisement of an ignorant population of African origin. McRae said, we'll read the whole proclamation then. It did not contemplate for their descendants subjection to an inferior race. We, the undersigned, they're all going to sign it, every businessman in town. Citizens of the city in Wilmington and the county of New Hanover to hereby declare that we will no longer be ruled and will never again be ruled by men of African origin. There are seven articles altogether, McCray explained. I wrote it myself. Dowling was still puzzled. What is it? McCray said, We call it the White Man's Declaration of Independence. So, Philip, was this a real document? <laughs> it's a real document. I've seen the original, and I believe the, uh, if memory serves, was 435 signatures, and you would recognize about 400 of them as belonging to families that are still in the area. So they had no problem at that time in history having their name on a document of that type and actually no problem recording the historical events after they occurred for posterity. And yet, when you bring out the story later, not so much. Well, the historiography of this whole thing is fascinating because you're right. At first, one of the things they tried very hard to do is give everything the color of law and the color of government. So they have documents. They have white government union documents, the White Declaration of Independence. There were speeches and sermons enumerating you know, the case that they were trying to make. And they did, in fact, get together. I think it was in 1905. The Light Infantry met again, and they all told their stories and unanimously assented that they wanted a pamphlet printed up that would tell exactly what they had done during during this violence. And what was the Light Infantry? Just clarify that. The Wilmington Light Infantry was one of these sort of paramilitary organizations that existed in many cities in the South in particular, not so much in the North. They had been mobilized as part of the Confederate Army back in the, the Civil War. They were mobilized as part of the United States Army going into Cuba, but they never made it that far. They spent the war in Brunswick, Georgia, and were so rowdy and out of hand that the citizens eventually petitioned to have them removed and sent back home. So they arrived back in Wilmington in 1898, sort of frustrated, extremely well-armed. They have all the brand-new Craig Jorgensen uh, repeating carbine, and they were itching for a fight, particularly a fight that, remember, this is the beginning of the age of American imperialism, all those wars against brown-skinned people, and they had not gotten into the fight. And so there's a, there's a both a kind of rampant militarism. There's also a frustration that they never got to show their heroism in battle, and they're just sort of itching for it. And so they become the group that is mobilized to quote unquote take back the city. They're going to be the on, on, in the vanguard of the violence in the black neighborhoods on November 10th of 1898. So so the one thing I wasn't quite clear on about this, of course, not all of it's amazing that it happened, but this. They had already won the vote. I mean, they they had prevented blacks from voting by by threat and force. They had the votes. They had they would have control of the town now, and yet the violence went forward anyway. Well, they didn't have control of the town government. That was oh, the, okay. that was the issue because they were not going to be elected until until 1900. And uh, so and you have to realize Wilmington was the richest city in North Carolina. The port of Wilmington was the jewel that was the place where there was lots of money coming and going and lots of political power to be had. And so they were going to just run the table of the election any way they could. Waddell, Colonel Alfred Moore Waddell famously said from this 
the stage of Thalian Hall. If you see the Negro out voting, tell him to go home. If you if he won't go home, shoot him down in his tracks. That was their position. Got wild applause for that line. And they decided they were going to make the Board of Aldermen resign. They were going to take all the constabulary, the police department, all the rest of it back. And they were going to teach the black population of Wilmington what their place was in their scheme. of. So they had more regional national voting going on in that election. And so they, they, they had to take back the local power by force exactly yes. and and threat and so there's a scene here i want you to read but by the way who's george roundtree okay george roundtree becomes kind of the conciliary of the two groups that are planning this one is called the secret nine and the other is called group six and they're so secret that each of them doesn't know of the existence of the other and uh and roundtree is a he's a lawyer he's a, a very imperious man he ends up going to the state legislature as a result of this vote, and he ends up crafting a thing widely called the Grandfather Clause, and it essentially disenfranchises black voters until the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 65. So he is an important figure because that uh, legislation was not just about North Carolina. That was widely copied throughout the South because he was such a fine lawyer, and he could craft it in such a way that it kind of could pass muster. So he becomes a, a kind of a seminal figure in all of this in terms of trying to create that color of law that I talked about. So, Philip, we've got a scene here from your book. Uh, this is at a point in time where the white supremacists have won the more regional and national elections, and they're trying to take back through threat the local control. So who, who's in this scene that you're going to be reading about? Uh, this scene uh, is uh, Mayor Silas Wright, uh, Benjamin Keith, who is a local merchant uh, and alderman, uh, other aldermen like Daniel Gore, um, and Elijah Green, a black alderman, and they're sitting around trying to say, what do we do now? This is, this is now happening in our city. There's violence. They're coming down. And you have to realize that uh, they're at the epicenter, but they're kind of this is kind of the um, eye of the storm in a way. They're, for the moment, safe, but they know that's not going to happen, uh, you know, stay that way for much longer. Daniel Gore said, Gentlemen, there is a solution. All eyes looked his way. None of them had forgotten that he'd caved into the Redeemers under threat, then publicly announced support for the white supremacist platform. The rumor was that he'd actually contributed money to Roundtree's campaign committee. I have had uh, certain conversations with leading individuals. Roundtree... Benjamin Keith said and swore. Yes, Gore said, and others. They, they assure me that order can be restored. I'll bet, Keith said, who had broken the order in the first place. Let me guess. They want a new board. That, that's it, yes. You resign if you want to, not me, John Norwood said. Elijah Green agreed. Gore said, it won't work unless it's unanimous. That's the only way they can guarantee control. Never, Keith said. This is still a democracy, and we're still the legally elected board. Gore said, It's beyond that now. No sense in arguing the finer points. The finer points? My God, a fair and legal election is a finer point than what in the name of Christ are the broad principles? Gore got up angry. Suit yourselves. I only told them I'd try. It's going to come to that sooner or later. You might as well resign yourselves to it. We're all lame ducks now. Why not save what we can? I'll wait for your answer at City Hall. He strode out and slammed the front door behind him. Mayor Wright held his head in his white-gloved hands. So that's it, Norwood said. Well, if you won't wire Washington, Keith said to the mayor, I will. 
Wright lifted his head. Gentlemen, I'm afraid Dan has a point. We don't have a lot of options. We've got to end the bloodshed. They talked for another hour, but nothing came of it. After they adjourned, Keith Norwood and Green went to Keith's home and called three federal judges before they found one who would intercede with Washington. An hour later, Keith received a telegram from the office of Attorney General John W. Griggs, who had conferred with President McKinley. At this time, no evidence to warrant action by Washington. Norwood said, that's it then. Keith said, gentlemen, look out for yourselves from now on. Norwood sat silently, tears streaming down his face. How had it all come to this? Philip, I suppose that was a question you were asking yourself when you started writing this book. How did it all come to this? Yes, I mean, the the thing about Wilmington in 1898 is that it was not, you know, it wasn't Tombstone in 1880. It wasn't some Wild West mining camp. It was a place with opera, with streetcars. It had a thriving middle class. It, you know, the black middle class had their own servants. Um, it had uh, uh, was already beginning. Not you couldn't call it a resort yet, but people were still going to the bathing beach in the summertime and down to Southport. It was a very kind of genteel, uh, civilized place that prided itself on being exactly that. In addition to being this economic driver for the whole state because of the port, and so in a sense, it was the most unthinkable place where this should happen. And and you sort of you look around and and I think we're seeing parallels to that today. I mean, I I spent many uh, a wonderful uh, week in Charlottesville and t- to go up there and see um, white supremacists marching with torches through the University of Virginia, and then you know chanting their Nazi slogans and 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 toting their guns. I mean, that's unthinkable. I mean, you can't. That's a juxtaposition of something from 1933 Germany onto uh, you know a genteel town in Virginia. Well, I think in Wilmington. People here felt the same way, and I sort of felt the same way in nineteen, you know, in the in the '90s when I was researching this. Although it it began to explain a lot of things, it began to explain why everything that is um, put up for some kind of political vote, whether it's school board redistricting or whether it is uh, voter ID or whether it is re- rezoning a neighborhood or what have you, carries this long dark backstory, the shadow of 1898. And unless you understand that and deal with it in a very upfront way, it continues to kind of just infect every bit of politics that happens in the city and the county. One of the ideas you hear over history when these kind of events take place is that silence and inaction on the part of some is just as much an evil as what occurs right in front of them. And you, you deal with this in the in the book. In fact, it's one of your themes, I think, this issue of, of character and whether is Sam Jinks is he gonna is he gonna cut it or is he not? You know, is he gonna rise to the occasion and stand up against this or not? And throughout the book he toys back and forth with this idea. And you've got a little scene in here. It's very short. It's about a minute one of the characters in this scene is a person named Waddell. Who is that? Colonel Alfred Moore Waddell is this kind of down-on-his-heels lawyer, ex-congressman, who, an ex-Confederate officer, who seizes the main chance during all this and becomes kind of the mouthpiece for the white supremacists. He's a spellbinding orator, and he's the one that he's about, in fact, in this scene, about to give the speech, which will give the movement its final push. And in that speech, he's going to tell them exactly what to do when they go out voting. And um, he gave this at Thalian Hall, which was, by some strange 
coincidence of architecture connected to the city hall, which is where the board of aldermen met. Uh, so, all it's a it's a strange thing that here's a guy getting ready to give a white supremacist speech in a place where he himself has performed in light opera. And he's talking here with Sam Jenks. And he's talking here in his study with Sam Jenks, who's come to visit him, and they're having cigars and brandy. Which raises the question of character. Right, exactly. So, Colonel Waddell stepped back and smiled, exhaling perfect wreaths of smoke. Sam had never been able to blow smoke rings. You can do this thing or you can do that thing, but you cannot do them both at once, the colonel said. He drew on his cigar, and the end glowed. Dichotomy. Choice. A man is either with us or he is against us. There is no middle ground. I don't know what you want me to do. Sam felt an irrational desire to justify himself to this man, to please him. He sounded so reasonable. Waddell's voice took on an avuncular tone. You have been doing it all along, writing the truth. Is that what I've been writing, Sam wondered. But now I want something more. I want your your loyalty. I want to know I can count on you. He clapped a hand on Sam's shoulder, then suddenly he punched him lightly in the chest. I want your heart. Sam didn't speak. This was beyond politics now. It was a battle for souls. Maybe it had been that all along. It came to him sitting in a leather chair in the presence of a Confederate colonel inhaling cognac and Cuban leaf. He was at last being invited inside the club. What are you going to do? No one will get hurt. I give you my word. Why do you need me? Waddell waved his cigar. We don't. It will all happen whether you are part of it or not. What would I have to do? Tell my story from the inside. So he wanted a biographer to make him famous. Let me let me think about it. Waddell stubbed out his cigar. Don't think too long. Afterward, it will matter who is with us. Names will be remembered. Loyalties will be counted. Sam felt a chill. I, I see. An enterprising young man like yourself could go far. The opportunities in this city will be nearly boundless. Philip, how many uh, whites stood by, if you know from your research, and watched this happen, and how many were actually involved in the tactics and the violence that occurred? Well, the short answer is that the majority, I mean, you have to realize that of, let's see, there were about a 25,000 population city, of which about maybe 17,000 were black, African-American. So that leaves seven to 8,000 whites. Uh, about 1,000 were involved directly in the violence, we think. That, that was the best number we could get. So something around six to 7,000, you know, take away the children, and maybe you've got 5,000 or 4,500. People just sat on their hands and let it happen. Just closed their doors, locked their windows, and hunkered down and waited for it to blow over like a bad storm, yeah. All right, well, before we finish here, um, I do want to do a little bit about the writing life, if that's okay. So you you are not only a writer of many books, but you also teach writing. Um, What gives you the most pleasure when researching a good story? I like finding out the twists that I never could have imagined. You know, the 
in doing this book, for example, I found out that there are tunnels under Wilmington, and they were used originally for drainage, but for other nefarious purposes like smuggling and, and so forth, and actually going down into those tunnels as part of the research for the book. So discovering things that were not even on your radar and then become kind of important in metaphorical ways or literal ways to telling the story, that's really cool. And how do you, how do you catalog all this? Because you're, we're looking at a long book here, and you've got a lot of facts in here. Um, how, do you, how do you pull it together, and how do you keep track of it? For this book, I wrote a pocket biography of every historical figure that I could find that mattered first. Then I did a timeline of all the events that I knew had happened in history, and then I created the bridge characters I needed because I couldn't put 60 or 70 real-life people in the book. I had bridge to, characters, meaning the fictional characters. The, the fictional yeah. characters that either represent someone whose name is unknown to history or who are going to be the representative of the reader, and then create their biographies and then weave them into the story as I came to learn it. With my, my ethic in doing this was that whenever I presented a public historical event, I was going to do it as accurately as I possibly could, as if I were writing it as history. So even though my fictional character is witnessing, say, the burning of the record newspaper, it's described exactly the way it happened from contemporary accounts and I mentioned earlier you've got this other book that's come out about the Civil War comes to North Carolina for books like that and book like Cape Fear Rising what are some of the challenges in writing history the challenge in writing history is a simple one is that almost every fact that you find out is contradicted by something else <laughs> even something as simple as like why was, you make it historical fiction was right? this particular soldier in this battle or not you know yeah. how many people died how and somebody's many gonna died. find out if you're if you're not right and right? and half the time you know there are contradictory accounts because people say well just look in the newspaper but you have to realize that newspapering for for many generations was a very politically fraught thing and generals were buying good accounts of themselves in, in battles and whatnot so part of it is that and then part of it is, is the just sheer bigness of it all trying to, to, say, write about the Civil War in North Carolina. You know, there's 100 counties now. There weren't quite that many during the war, but it was still the same landmass, and there were such a variety of people engaged in such a variety of occupations, such a variety of loyalties, that trying to get that all under one tent really becomes like uh, managing a circus. So, Philip, where does your muse hang out? I think my muse hangs out in... Uh, the, the work ethic that I got from the Franciscan nuns when I was a kid in, in the elementary school. And it was simply, you know, do your homework, get a good night's sleep, and start again in the morning. And there's always work to be done. I don't believe in writer's block. If I get tired, I'm tired, and I take a rest. But writer's block usually means you're either um, off on a tangent that's taking you someplace far afield, so you want to backtrack to the last intersection where you took a decision and, and go a different way. Or it just means you're tired, or maybe what you're writing is boring and you should write something else. <laughs> so you, you're often working with uh, you know, young aspiring writers, and I assume there's a first lecture you give where, where, you, where you welcome them to the program. Do you have any you know, two or three bullet points you tell them? Yeah, I, t I tell them, among other things, the most important thing is you're here to fail. You're here to try things that are hard, and they're not going to turn out very well. But, you know, the finished carpenter, the cabinet maker, the sculptor, the, their first efforts are going to be imperfect, and you're, you're not here to do the safe thing because you already know how to do that. You're here to punch through to a different level of expertise. And to do that, you're going to have to try things and fail, and that requires that you be willing to be embarrassed and, and a little humility and a good sense of humor. And if you can bring all that to the workshop, yes, and you work hard, you will get better. Are you sometimes surprised, Philip, in terms of where your writing takes you once you get started? Or do you have pretty much an idea of where you're going and where you're going to end up? I'm, I'm 
always astonished at the projects that wind up on my desk. Like I never imagined in my wildest dreams I would write about um, white supremacist massacre or the Civil War or any of the other things I've done. Um, but when I start planning a book, at a certain point I stop and I realize, okay, I'm going to do this book, and I start to think it through a bit. In fact, I teach a whole year-long course in this at the university How, because putting a book together requires a, an appreciation of scale and a control over this large canvas that writing an essay or a short story or a poem doesn't. And so I work you know, very much through uh, kind of an outline and a blueprint, although you have to always be ready to abandon that when a better idea comes along. And if it's not working, to kind of re jiggers. They're always putting in what are the engineers call them, change orders. Mm. Right? <laughs> That's good. I like that. So uh, is routine uh, a part of your writing process? Yeah. I, I compartmentalize. If I'm in at the university to teach, I'm not trying to write. I'm there for my students 100%. If I'm at home and I've got my writing hours blocked out, I'm not doing email. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not answering the phone. I'll probably do two things. I'll write, and I'll take breaks to play with my dog, and then I'll come back to the writing desk. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. Uh, well, let's do this. We've got uh, a few minutes left in the show. I want to. There's a scene toward the end of the book, and I don't know if we have time to read it, but it's sort of like the aftermath here. And after they win the day, so to speak, and they take over the control of the government, uh, both locally and regionally, and they've committed these vicious acts, these violent acts, they they suddenly look up and look around and. There's nobody in town to do many of the jobs that had made the town run. Yeah, what they had forgotten conveniently was that a lot of the labor on the waterfront, working the compresses, working the uh, the stevedores, working the cranes, the load ships, and a whole lot of other stuff, the machinists and the railroad, all that was skilled labor. A great deal of it was done by the black population. They, they were generations deep in skilled labor, and they controlled all sorts of building trades. Also, they controlled the waterfront. They controlled the uh, the foreman jobs and the cotton mills to a large extent. And you can't just put somebody in charge of that and say, here's a complicated machine, learn how to do it. And so it took only a matter of a day or so before they realized, oh, my God, all these people are hiding out in the swamps on Smith Creek or they're, they've gone across the river or wherever they're hiding. We have to try to get them back. And so they began sending delegation after delegation to try to bring these men back to work, and they couldn't get them to. And Wilmington shut down for a period. And, you know, you could make an argument that this was the beginning and the, of the end of the decline of Wilmington as this major uh, player in North Carolina until, you know, the modern era when it's been revised by, revived by tourism. And then Roundtree, the lawyer, unfortunately the lawyers are not always doing, doing good. <laughs> uh, he comes up with this idea to uh, pass an ordinance that if you're not working, you're a vagrant. And... Uh, you could be made to work without wages for up to 30 days, which sounds a bit like slavery. Yeah, it, it really just does basically bring back some version of the black codes, which were rampant in North Carolina all throughout the antebellum period and then revived after the Civil War. And so you, uh, for example, right in the, in the run-up to the Civil War, you could free a slave in North Carolina, but that slave had to be 50 years old or older, had to be somebody who could have documented meritorious service. And then when they were freed, they had to leave within 30 days and never come back to the state. And if they came back, they could be re-enslaved. And so your choice was stay here with the people you know or go off at the age of 50 with nothing and start a new life somewhere among strangers. So it has never been an easy place uh, to be a black person, in the coast of North Carolina in particular, because it was in many ways the center of the slave culture. It was in many ways the most draconian, and this simply revived a lot of the echoes of that time period. 
How, how would you describe Wilmington today in terms of race relations? You've been, you've made your life there. You, you live there. What changes have you seen? It's still fraught, but it's miles ahead of where we were in 94. I can say that much. Um, uh, but every issue that comes up is still kind of trailing the long shadow of 1898. The, the good thing is at least people acknowledge it now, and it is openly talked about in ways that are very productive. And, you you know, the local radio station, WHQR, has done things about it. It's been talked about in the newspaper. There are forums, you know. Uh, so um, people are addressing it, and, and there are some really good leadership right now in the city and county. So that all gives, you know, cause for optimism. And Philip, how has writing this book um, affected your your own outlook on life? Has it opened your eyes? Has it helped guide you in some way that perhaps you didn't, you weren't thinking before you took on this project? Yeah, I think I was thinking of it as a historical kind of adventure story when I started it, and then I, it became I became outraged by it. I remember very clearly one day up at the Wilson Library, probably the third day in, and I'd been immersed in this white supremacist stuff, and I was so sick to my stomach, I literally had to go outside for a while and get some fresh air. Mm -hmm. And so I think it drove home to me in a way that I never understood before, just how foundational this white supremacist ethic was uh, in the South, in slavery, and indeed, you could argue, in the, the very foundation of the country, as you start finding out now the various universities like Princeton or Harvard or whoever who have owed their fortunes to shipmasters who, you know, uh, conducted their trade in the Middle Passage. So you realize that this is a much bigger thing than a city. It's a much bigger thing than a few days in November of 1898. And it, it really has colored my outlook uh, since then in a, in a fairly radical way. You went from uh, promoting this book in the 25th anniversary to also ha having a book come out uh, on the called The Last Battleground, where the Civil War comes to North Carolina. That, too, is, is a difficult thing to write about, right? I mean, you're, you're not from here, and yet you, you dove in, you, you did the research. Where did you get the material for the book? Well, The Last Battleground came out of a series of magazine narratives, and the whole premise was they wanted somebody who didn't know about the war and didn't already have an opinion about it. And so I went out and reported it as if it were happening outside my window and traveled to the places where things were happening, you know, as far afield as uh, General Sherman's boyhood home or the Salisbury prison uh, mass grave where they buried the prisoners who were killed there or Fort Fisher, the, the famous bloody battle that uh, came near the end of the war. And as I was writing it, one good thing about doing a magazine series is people continue to contact you each time you publish a piece and say, hey, my great-grandfather left this. Would you like to see it? And so what I was able to get was the most valuable thing there is and the hardest thing to get, which is private stories. Because all the generals always write their memoirs because they're famous <laughs> and they're, they want to tell you yeah. what a great job they did. Yeah. But it's the private person, it's the farm wife, you know, in Lenore, or some kid from Bladen County who's missing in action and his father's trying to find him or, or whatever. Those are the hard letters to find. And so I was always grateful that, that many people would, would show me that kind of thing. Well, Philip, this is, uh, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, where can people find your books, Cape Fear Rising and The Last Battleground? Well, they can, of course, go online to Blair or UNC Press, which is doing The Last Battleground, but they're also available through any bookstore, any online bookstore. You can get them, or you can all go to philipgerard.com, and there are links that will just take you straight through, and you can you can read about me and, uh, and learn all about the books. Well, Philip, thanks for coming to Charlotte and, uh, and sharing you know this very interesting story and hope, hopefully one that when people learn more about it, uh, will uh, give them a little more appreciation for the 
history of the times and, and perhaps even the vestiges uh, that are left behind. Well, thanks. It's been a great pleasure being here and yeah. talking with you. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have Amber Smith. Amber is a New York Times bestselling writer who writes stories about teenagers whose experiences reflect her own personal struggles while growing up. Her first book, The Way I Used to Be, was a New York Times bestseller which addressed sexual assault with a young female protagonist. Amber is an advocate for increased awareness of gendered violence and LBGTQ equality. Uh, She reads from her third book, Something Like Gravity, which she hopes will encourage inclusion and acceptance. And she starts the show with a short reading from the opening of the book where we meet Chris, a young transgender male. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our five sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Reader's Podcast.